to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care and community pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes. iFormerX is a community of practice. If you are a health professional or anyone training to become a health professional, uh, you're welcome to join. It's free. Just visit iFormerX.org. Hypertension remains the most common chronic disease in developed countries, and poorly controlled blood pressure contributes to heart disease, vascular disease, strokes, kidney disease, eye disease, and more. Unfortunately, less than 25% of people with hypertension in the United States are consistently at their blood pressure goal, and worldwide, the numbers are even worse. One of the challenges in getting patients to their treatment goal is the trial and error approach that is commonly used in practice. And we've got four different antihypertensive classes that are all recommended as first-line treatments and all improve outcomes when viewed from a population health perspective. In other words, on average, if everyone was treated with hydrochlorothiazide as their initial treatment, the outcomes wouldn't be much different than, say, if amlodipine had been used as a first-line choice. So on average, the outcomes are similar, but individuals, of course, are not averages, and people might respond to treatments differently. Thus, most practitioners agree that a personalized approach to therapy is needed. But is it really? From a public health perspective, if most patients respond similarly Perhaps it would be better to follow a strict treatment algorithm where everyone has started on a specific class of medications first before moving on to either switching or adding another class. So a recently published paper in JAMA caught my eye because the investigators were explicitly examining the intra-patient variability in blood pressure response to four different classes of medications if indeed there is wide intra-patient variability in response, this would suggest a personalized approach would be beneficial. And joining me to talk us through this paper is Dr. Anthony Ishak, who, who just started his new position as a clinical pharmacist at Massachusetts General Hospital, or MGH. Anthony was a panelist on a show a few months ago talking about hypertension management. And I really wanted to get him back on the show, so this was a perfect opportunity. Dr. Ishak is an ambulatory care clinical specialist and has a wealth of experience managing patients with elevated blood pressure. So I'm really looking forward to his comments about the practical implication of this study. Anthony, it's great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity to join you again, and I'm looking forward to discussing a very important clinical topic. So, Anthony, I'd like to set up this discussion with some background information about the initial choice of agents for hypertension. Currently, there are four classes of medications that are recommended as first-line treatments for elevated blood pressure. Now, there are times when we might select one class of agents over another due to a compelling indication, but in general, the guidelines don't prefer one class over another. And, and this recommendation is largely based on the ALL-HAT trial. So I'd like to take a little trip down memory lane 
and briefly review the design and the results of All Hat and explain why it continues to have a significant influence on practice today. All Hat and Sprint are probably two of the landmark studies that we continuously reference, or I at least do in, in clinical practice, as far as trials that really inform what we do when we think about blood pressure management. And in fact, All Hat is one of the largest trials ever conducted, and it focused on four of the major pharmacological classes at that time. It took a look at an ACE inhibitor, lisinopril, thiazide diuretic, chlorothaladone, alpha blocker, doxazosin, and a calcium channel blocker, amlodipine, to see if they reduced fatal coronary artery disease or non-fatal MIs. Patients had to have stage one or two hypertension and at least one other CAD risk factor. And some of the more common ones that we encounter are diabetes and smoking, so they did include that. And the gold blood pressure was less than 140 over 90. It was a randomized control trial, and it was, again, large, 33,000 plus patients. The average age was 67, 47% were women. It was fairly diverse, 35% black, 19% Hispanic. It included 36% of patients with diabetes. And what it ended up showing was that the doxazin arm was terminated early because of the risk of heart failure as compared to chlorothaladone. But with respect to the other three agents, we learned that they're pretty effective. The blood pressure reduction was pretty similar. There was just a slight difference between amlodipine of chlorothaladone of less than a point on the systolic. And um, lisinopril was just two points higher than chlorothaladone. But notably in patients that are Black or African American, there was a four-point difference. So slight difference there. But otherwise, when you look at outcomes, chlorothaladone as compared to amlodipine reduced instance of heart failure, everything else was the same. And in comparison with lisinopril, other than stroke, heart failure, everything else was similar. This study really informed the 2017 AHA guidelines where they recommended chlorothaladone as a preferred diuretic and really made a strong case for thiazide diuretics. But one thing that would have been nice to see would have been if they had included beta blockers since they didn't use them and they were fairly common at that time in terms of being used as agents for hypertension. Okay, so now let's take a look at the Precision Hypertension Care Trial, or the FISIC trial for short. Uh, what's the rationale for conducting the study, and can you tell us about the design of the study, and then give us a high-level summary of the results? Yeah, so similar to the All-Hat study, they also used four classes, and those four classes that they used are what we know as the four first-line classes. Um, and we know that those are all basically equivocal in blood pressure-lowering effect from population studies and clinical trials. But we don't know if there might be variation based on individuals. And that was the question they sought to answer. Would you as an individual respond better to one agent over the other? This study was significantly smaller than Allhat and the other landmark trials. It was randomized. It was a double-blind. It was a repeat crossover trial utilizing four first-line agents. In this case, again, amlodipine was featured, lisinopril, but they used hydrochlorothiazide as their thiazide diuretic, and they used candesartan as the ARB. Again, the four most common classes that we use is first-line, and they compared all of those within the same patient. Primary outcome was looking at systolic blood pressure during the day using the 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and they used daytime definition as 10 in the morning to about 8 in the evening, um, so a little bit earlier than what we would think of in terms of um, ending the daytime cutoff. It was done completely in a Swedish population. It's between 40 and 75 years of age, again, the typical population we think about for hypertension in terms of age, and they ended up enrolling 280 patients. 
mean age was 64 with a mean duration of three years. And part of that was because they included people on therapy and people who were naive to hypertension therapy. It should be noted over half the population were men, but they excluded a lot of common disease states. So they excluded CKD, gout, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, patients with secondary hypertension or other serious diseases. They basically took anyone who was on treatment and had them stop all hypertension meds. And after two weeks, they randomized them to a treatment arm. As long as their blood pressure at the end of the washout was between 140 to 179 for systolic, or a diastolic less than 109. So they were quite liberal with a diastolic cutoff. Interestingly, the average blood pressure at the end of the run-in period was 154 over 89. Patients underwent six treatment periods for each of the respective agents. So basically, um, all four agents, plus they repeated two of the agents that were randomly um, chosen based on a, a predefined randomization. The trial periods were seven to nine weeks for each of the therapies with a one-week washout in between. The order was randomized for the six treatments. Patients showed the greatest blood pressure lowering response to lisinopril in this trial and the least blood pressure response to hydrochlorothiazide. And then amlodipine and candesartan were intermediate between those two. Now, two pairs, interestingly, lisinopril, candesartan were very similar in blood pressure and amlodipine, hydrochlorothiazide were also similar. This basically meant that choosing between lisinopril versus candesartan was not really clinically important, and the same between amlodipine and hydrochlorothiazide. There was some within patient variability, about three points or so, and the overall difference, if you had chosen the personalized option, most commonly lisinopril, was about four points lower than if you had chosen a fixed selection in this study. So, Anthony, every study has its strengths and limitations. I'm wondering what you think are the key strengths and limitations of this study. Are there any design flaws that give you some pause? And, and what about the generalizability of the data? I think it was fantastic that they chose the four first-line um, pharmacotherapy classes according to the guideline. I think that, that was a major positive with the study and that they compared them within the same patient letting us know if there was within patient variability and not just between patient variability. However, I feel like the generalizability is pretty low with this. They exclude a significant number of common comorbidities like diabetes, gout, CKD, cardiovascular disease, and it was done entirely in a Swedish population. As a result, at least with the population I see in Boston and in an urban hospital, it's not really applicable to me here. And I expect even in the U.S. and most of the world, it's hard to apply it um, when it was done in such a homogenous population. They also didn't compare the medication to the equivalent doses, which could have been a disadvantage to specific agents like candesartan or possibly even class-wide extrapolation since they used hydrochlorothiazide instead of chlorothalidone. I would have liked to have seen a comparison that included chlorothalidone, and I think for an ARB, maybe a more potent ARB option like Olmosartan or Herbisartan. Also, when you think about the trial periods, I do feel that, you know, taking advantage of the kinetics of the medications and, and with proper monitoring, you could have probably done it a little bit faster. Each arm probably could have been done over the course of a month instead of seven to nine weeks. And I would have liked to have seen the percent that reached blood pressure goal for each agent, since that's a more relevant outcome that we use in clinical practice when we think about goals. I don't really think bias had that much of an impact in this study. So the investigators actually found a fairly small population-wide interpatient variability, 
But there were some patients that had pretty large differences in their blood pressure response when comparing a response during these crossover periods from one treatment to another. So while the mean or average difference in the response was small, some patients did have 10 or 20 millimeters of mercury differences in their responses. But are you convinced that this data proves their hypothesis? And their hypothesis was that a personalized approach to treatment would lead to meaningful improvements in blood pressure control and ultimately, we would assume, cardiovascular event rates. So can it lead to a more personalized approach to treatment? So overall, I think we need to think about what was the ultimate outcome in terms of blood pressure lowering? And I'm not sure that five extra points um, makes it worth doing this broader. I take into consideration that some people respond a little bit differently to different agents. That the first thing I do is I look and see what other comorbidities they have, because ultimately that's going to determine what we're using in terms of agents. And if they have those comorbidities, then we're likely to choose an agent that's going to help the blood pressure, but also make positive impact on the outcomes for those other comorbidities. The other thing I think about is how far away they are from goal. So if they're more than 20 points from goal, we should be starting two agents. The other thing that I think about is, is cost. And luckily, none of the four major classes make a difference in terms of cost of the medication. The same so when I start a medication, if it's a single agent, I'm willing to increase it if I continue to see a big difference. But if it's a couple of points, then I think about cross-tapering to another agent if the patient is willing to. So we add on a second one, and if they get a bigger impact, we lower the first one to help minimize meds. The ultimate goal is to have people at goal on the least number of medications. And then the other thing that I think we really need to keep in mind is, is how much of an impact lifestyle modification still has. And lifestyle modification can make a bigger difference, up to 10 points in some cases. So I think the take-home point is to still think about lifestyle modification, choosing the more potent medication in each pharmacological class to give you the biggest bang for your buck in terms of blood pressure lowering and 24-hour coverage. Well, Anthony, I'm so grateful that you agreed to write this commentary. Thanks for letting me pick your brain today. I'm not sure this study will lead to changes in clinical practice guidelines, but it, it does suggest that, you know, some patients respond differently to different classes. But the unresolved question, I think, is can we use readily available clinical information to make a more informed choice a priori upfront, or do we need to trial each treatment option to find the best choice for each patient? Given that most patients will ultimately need two or three agents to get to goal, perhaps it's a mute point. Well, tell us what you think by leaving a comment. Visit iFormerX.org. Only members of iFormerX can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. And if you are looking for board certification credit or continuing education credit, check out the literature evaluation an evidence-based practice series produced by the American Pharmacists Association. And you can learn more about that program by clicking on the link, which is at the bottom of the commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to extend a big thank you and a shout out to Michelle Fravel from the University of Iowa. Shelly recently joined our editorial board, and she's 
already recruited new authors and peer reviewers in addition to authoring a couple of commentaries and serving as a peer reviewer herself. Shelley is full of great ideas and how to make iFormerX even better, and she's got her students working on some cool stuff this year. So thank you, Shelley. I truly appreciate your dedicated service and thoughtful input. And quite frankly, iFormerX simply wouldn't exist without dedicated members like Shelley. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Thank you.